My name is Cheryl Till, and for this author special episode, I am joined today by Simon Clues, who is here to speak with us about his brand new book, The New Academic. Simon is a writer, editor, arts and literary event organizer, and specialist trainer in written and oral communication. He is currently an honorary senior fellow at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, prior to which he spent 15 years as the director of the Melbourne Engagement Lab at Melbourne University, and 14 years as the festival director and CEO of Melbourne Writers' Festival. His book, The New Academic, is available for purchase now, published by UNSW Press. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for joining us on this podcast today. So you have your book, The New Academic, which I confess I'm only at chapter four, but is already a very interesting read. Um, what was your inspiration for writing this book? Um, it was more, it was more being nagged really for 15 years. The whole, the thing was everyone I talked to would say, well, hang on, this is what you tell people to do. Surely you should be writing a book. And I essentially resisted for 15 years, mostly because I was never sure who it was for. I mean, one of the things I was, I, I teach a lot and talk about is that no piece of writing other than something like a diary, which is private, should ever be undertaken unless you know who it's for because if you know who you're writing for that tells you so many things like the sort of language the levels of complexity and you know how you can talk to them and so for a long time I wasn't sure not so much what I was writing but who I was writing it for and eventually someone just said this is obvious this is essentially what you're doing in the classroom and so the people that you talk to which are in my case PhDs early career researchers you know young academics um, that's who you're writing it for so get off your ass and write it and I did. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, I mean, even though you said it's really for academics and PhD students, I think someone, uh, anyone who reads it really um, can learn something from it because it has quite a, um, I would say, quite a truth to it. And every little bit that I've read so far in the ways you describe how we need to connect with people more and understand and actually listen, which is something I think is disappearing a little bit in the world today. Well, we sort of live in this world, but you're right. I mean, this is not just academics, this is everyone. We live in a world where if you can't talk about what you do in an, you know, an accessible, entertaining, informative way, if you can't sort of, in a way, it's, you know, as horrible as it sounds, if you can't sell yourself, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and I don't, and I don't, you know, necessarily think that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it's a thing. Uh, and because it's a thing, it's basically what everyone needs to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, of course. That makes absolute sense. Um, now, obviously, as you said, the book is mostly aimed at academics and it's full of advice here. But what advice would you give to a new academic? Maybe a top point from the book or something beyond that, just in general? Um, my advice with uh, two academics, particularly young, new, up and comers, say, say when you're starting your PhD, is to think what you're going to do with it. Um, I always think with a PhD, for example, the choice of topic is incredibly important because not only does it have to be interesting research that's going to further the knowledge and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but it's in a way it sort of brands you. I mean, that's you're not going to spend the rest of your life talking about it, but you're going to spend a fairly large chunk of your life. And if you're smart, you're going to you know, convert it into something that you can use. And so you'll do a PhD, you'll research a particular thing, whatever that be, and then, you know, the world is your oyster. There's articles, there's blogs, there's videos, there's TV, there's newspapers, there's everything. Um, and you can use that knowledge and whatever you do with it um, 
basically for the next stage of your career, because even if you decide to be purely academic, um, you still have to straddle both camps. You still have to have a foot in the, you know, the general world. You still have to be visible. You have, people have to be aware of you. Um, even a good example is, you know, grant applications for, for very academic grants. I know because I've been on this, you know, the other side of this process. Yes, you've got to do all the graphs and the charts and the detail, and it has to be absolutely, you know, researched within an inch of its life, has to be deadly accurate. But one of the things that committees assessing, you know, multi-million dollar grants do is they Google you or they look at your little summary in that box on the front where you only get 50 words or 200 words or something. And so that ability to sell yourself and to communicate what it is and what you do in a way that grabs someone's attention and excites them, you know, amuses them, entertains them, educates them is absolutely vital. Yeah, yeah. And in the case of, um, say, students who are maybe not going into academia, would you offer them any particular insights that might differ from what you've just said? No, because I actually think it's a universal thing. And so what the skills and the and the abilities that you will use to talk about your incredibly detailed research in your PhD is pretty much exactly what you do if you sit in a job interview to work with an advertising agency or a you know a sporting event or an arts event you know it's essentially that thinking about the audience whether it's a, you know a live audience who's listening or a audience who's reading your words thinking about how they understand it what they're looking for how they're going to process those words and those ideas and giving them giving those ideas and words to them in a way that they will appreciate. So yeah, it's, it's, it really isn't any different. It's a sort of universal skill. Yeah, it really does apply to everybody. Um, on the note of live audiences, you have been the festival director for the Melbourne Writers Festival for 15 years now, I believe. Um, do you have a favorite memory or biggest takeaway from this process that you've been so involved in for so long? Well, it's very funny because I sort of, I've, I've stepped away from that in a way, although not only did that, I did 10 crime and justice festivals, which were crime writing and social justice. I did writers at Coma, writers at the convent. So I've, I did the maths recently and worked out that I've, I've put something like, oh, I know I've had 500,000 people in a collective audience and I've put thousands of readers in front of them. Um, just, there are so many memories, lots of them really good, lots of them really bad, you know, some ama some amazing things, you know, being in, in the presence of some of the greatest people ever. I mean, I have to say the, the, the best one that sticks with me was not necessarily particularly a literary highlight because, it, it, in fact, it was sitting on stage with James Bond. I got to interview Sir Roger Moore when he did his, you know, biography, autobiography, sorry. And it was just wonderful because, you know, he was, I grew up watching those films. So, you know, that's a, a little thing like that. I've got some terrible stories about writers I couldn't possibly say because of the laws of libel, which is such a shame because some of them behave so badly. Um, but what is really interesting is that having now gone on to do the book and stuff, I what is really good is that I know how to be the good author and I know how to be the bad author. And so when you do something as little as going into a bookstore to sign copies of your book, I know how you have to behave. And I know how you can help the bookseller to, you know, to A, like you and to B, sell books. I also know what you could do that is, you know, a complete no-no. And I, I avoid that behavior. Yeah, so it's all been one big learning process, really. Well, it's very funny because literally this week I was in some bookstores signing books and my publicist would go up to the counter and she and I twice now I, I overheard her say, uh, I've got an author with me. And on both occasions, I turned around to see who it was. <laughs> oh, it's me. Oh, sorry. You know? It takes a moment to realize you've stepped into the, those shoes and now you're one of them. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Now, you've also mentioned in your book, which I found very interesting, in terms of reading to improve what you write, you've said that um, we should try to read things that have nothing to do with our areas of expertise. And I can see behind you, you have a massive bookshelf, like a huge library there. So obviously a keen reader. Um, do you have a specific favorite book or a book that has influ influenced you the most, whether that is academic or fiction? Um, I have many favorite books and often it's the one I've just read, but there is one book that I read every year in a little rich, I read 1984 every year because A, its ideas become more and more relevant, um, you know, not in that whole big brother in the street, cameras in the streets thing, but you know, the, the ideas behind it just are a deeper and deeper reflection of the human race of how, you know, where we're going, where we're going wrong particularly, but B, because George Orwell was one of the greatest writers and also one of the greatest editors. And one of my sort of things is that people underestimate editing, even those who, who know that it's a good thing to do. Still, I mean, I maintain that I have this 49-51 ratio that I use for lots and lots of things. And I think in writing, it means that the maximum time that writing gets is 49% and the minimum time that editing gets is 51% and possibly more. I tend to think writing is a finite activity. Like, you know, when you're writing, you know when you've said it all. You know, if, you, if you're honest with yourself, yeah, you know, I can't do any more. But you can always do more editing. And Orwell was the consummate editor. I mean, if you look at his writing, I sometimes give students the first page of 1984 and say, OK, get a red pen, find some words that we don't need. And it's almost impossible. He, he had this amazing process where he interrogated every single word. And his default position was cut. So a word or a phrase or a paragraph or whatever had to justify its existence in order to remain on the page. And if you see, I've seen photographs of uh, my favorites, I think it's about the eighth version of 1984. So he's been through seven of these, hasn't even gone to the publisher or the editor yet. You can hardly read the typewritten text for the red lines that are crossing out, the comments, you know, and this is the eighth version he's done. So yeah, it's a brilliant book. It's a brilliant story. It's very relevant. And it also is a great, bit of inspiration for good writing. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say about editing as well, because I think there's often this assumption that people have that complex language is better and having these long descriptions and flowery words in there really help to bring it to life. And that if it's simple or dumbed down in any way, then it would be less worthy. But um, as you say, Orwell would be a great example to disprove that assumption. Oh, I think so. And I mean, I have nothing against the long sentence. I have nothing against long words, as long as they're doing something. You know, they have to be earning their money. You can't just throw in words. They're not set dressing. They're not window dressing. You know, every single word in that long sentence has to be doing something. Otherwise, it doesn't belong there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the editing process, obviously, you have some opinions on that. Do you have a preference for editing on paper or using a computer? Where do you sit in one of those camps? It's funny, I have pages and pages and pages of things on editing that, one of the things I used to do when I ran the Writers' Festival was sit on the side of the stage. And invariably, no matter what the topic was, no matter what the writer was, when it got to question time, there'd be a few questions about you know the, the issue at hand, and then people would start to talk about the craft of writing, because the, the a predictable thing about writers festival audiences is at least half of them are writing a book or want to write a book and they all want to know they're looking for the magic bullet they want to know how to write the best book and so people ask when do you write where do you write how do you write how do you know and it got on to editing 
and I used to keep notes. And if something something said something interesting once, okay, I'd, you know, I'd listen to that. If they said it twice or two different writers said it, I would pay more attention. And if three different writers said it, I would write it down. And I have a whole load of quotes, some of which are in the book, some of which I use when I teach, of really, really good advice for writers. Things like, you know, a 50-word sentence is better expressed as two 25-word sentences, and probably even better as two 20-word sentences with 10 words going in the bin. Um, and lots of little, you know, uh, sort of, you know, throwaway quotes in a way. Um, and I, I have my favorite, which is not necessarily the most accurate or the most, you know, relevant, but uh, after about 10 slides worth of, you know, wall-to-wall -wall quotes, my favorite last quote I'll use is, never use anything that you can imagine the Queen would say, which is, I think it's just, a, it's a very funny way of, you know, thereafter, thereunto, herefore, you know, all those sort of those clumsy words that are very old-fashioned and traditional. I think it's a nice way of saying that. So yes, never, I never use anything that the Queen would use. That is a very interesting way of putting it. I do actually like that because there's often this assumption that anything you say in your head with this British accent would be somehow better and um, well regarded in some way. But it is true that a lot of those words are just meaningless. Yeah, exactly. A lot, a lot of them are padding, you know. Um, I have to, you know, without casting aspersions on the legal fraternity, all that notwithstanding and, you know, all those words that they use, it, it's total padding, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, in terms of quotes as well, one that I really did like from quite early on in your book, you have quoted, uh, just write better. Now, it sounds merciless. It sounds um, very harsh in some ways, but it really does speak to the truth of the matter is that if you don't improve, you can't possibly engage people. Is there anything you would expand on that? Um, I know because I think it is absolutely perfect and, and, and you know, go by the book, read the story, but essentially it comes from Annie Prue. Um, or E. Annie Peru, she was then before she dropped the E, who was an astonishingly good writer, but whose personality she came across as quite, you know, dour and, and, and she was very frightening in a way. She wasn't. She was absolutely delightful, but the whole, the, 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 you know, the Annie Peru, the face in public was a bit scary. And so to have, you know, and it's a very long build up and, the, you know, the question got, anyway, to have the punchline of this quite frightening character leaning into the mic and say, just write better it's you know you can't put it better than that and it is and it you know it it, it underlines that whole thing that the other way of, of putting it which another thing that i hear often is we, we do pitching sessions we'll have people we'll have a panel of publishers or editors or whatever and we'll have people in the audience or in the participants who've got ideas for books or articles or magazines or whatever and they pitch their little hearts out and no matter what the story is how good it is it, you know it can be the most brilliant story and it can you know solve one of the world's most complex problems uh, and your average publisher or editor will say yeah that's brilliant we love it we'd like to read it um we could even publish it comma as long as the writing is good and there's always that qualification so it doesn't in a way it doesn't matter how mundane or how interesting is the story it's how you tell it that matters and a good example of that and he said going off on a completely wild tangent is the new yorker it's you know my favorite magazine there are stories in there that if you tell people what they're about, they just sound like, what? I mean, I remember reading a story about the sharpening of knives at a molecular level. Now, if you describe it like that, it sounds like it would put you to sleep. In fact, it was absolutely fascinating. It was, you know, unputdownable. And this was about metallurgy, um, you know, the physical structure of metals, pressure. It just was really, really interesting, as well as how knives are designed and made. 
incredible data, but beautifully written. Um, and it's a really good example of, of you know, that the way you write it is vitally important. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant example. Another one you brought up in the book as well was how NASA goes about engaging people with their writing. And I do agree, it is very accessible and it is very interesting. I was wondering though, in terms of an area of expertise, which is perhaps on the political side or something that is more divisive to the public, how would you advise approaching that in a way that engages to a wider audience if you're trying to get people on both sides of the spectrum? I think you have to do it in a, I, 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 there's two answers to that. The first one is that there isn't an answer because everyone does it differently. The secondly, the second answer though is that whatever you do, you must do it in a way that is true to yourself. Um, and to give a really extreme example, good old Christopher Hitchens, who sadly is no longer with us, he had no problems completely offending anyone within reach uh, when he had a political point to make. Um, he was an absolute Oh, you know, words we can't say on podcast. He was just, he was a terrible person, but in a great way, because he had decided he wanted to, you know, make particular points, make particular claims. And he thought it was more important that that claim got aired than people's, you know, moral compasses were not offended. He would just say stuff. On the other hand, you, you know, hypothetically might be working in a particularly sensitive environment. You might be in receipt of funding from organizations. There might be the diplomacy, that little dance that you have to do. And so you would have to tell the story in a very different way. You would have to make your point in a different way. Um, I don't think it matters. I think you have to find your own right way. Uh, but as I say, make sure it's true to yourself. Don't, don't ever try and fake it or put it on. Just you know, be yourself and make the point in the way that you think you know, needs to be made. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely brilliant way of putting it. Well, thank you for being with us today. Just to wrap up, I would like to ask, what is on your shelf or bedside table that you are reading right now? Right now, I think I have a Scottish, in fact, I know I have um, a Scottish crime novel whose name I've forgotten because there's a, new, a writer I've discovered called J.D. Kirk, and he's a bit like Stuart McBride, for those who know Scottish crime. He's a bit like Christopher Brookmeyer in that he's, no, a bit gritty, a bit grisly, but also quite funny. Uh, and, the, and the Scots, you know, Rankin has got a great sense of humour. The Scots seem to do really good humor, dark humour combined with crime. Um, I discovered him recently, and I'm in absolute admiration of him, not only because his books are good, the characters are lively, and, and you know, they come to life, they're very three-dimensional, they're very funny, but he seems to be able to churn out a book every six months at least like you know you you get the alerts on twitter or whatever or you know amazon will tell you what's coming up and most people you hear from once a year and it's very exciting and that comes a new book jd kirk is just churning them out so you know if nothing else god that man can write yeah that's actually really amazing to have yeah. so many books and still have them be of such quality it's uh, an admirable goal for all of us aspiring writers listening along it is <laughs> Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, hope you have a good day and thank you for your time. Thank you. Tune in for our next episode where we will be discussing more Australian authors as we take a look at the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams.